If you're looking at a map, the spot where I am standing has a simple yet ominous name. It's called the Island. It's an appropriate name. It's separated from most other land in the area, not by a flowing river or an ocean estuary, but by a road. US Route 441 splits around the island, and when you're deep within the woods, you can still see the steel and aluminum of cars whizzing by in the sunlight just beyond the tree line. To get to the island, you either have to park at the municipal building just outside of the forest, or park at the nearby trailhead and cross the busy roadway, as I did. The island is not the sort of thing someone just stumbles upon. You don't hike through the trails, make a turn, and suddenly wind up in the dense brush of this spot. You must seek it out. You must know exactly what you are looking for. I did going in, yet when I stepped into the heart of the island, I was still awestruck. We're in Marion County, a hop from the town of Ocala, only a few short miles from the western edge of the Ocala National Forest. If you go west from here, you'll be at the Rainbow River, which connects to the Gulf of Mexico by the Withlacoochee River. To the east, you'll encounter the Oklawaha River, a large winding stream that essentially traces the entire western and northern border of the Ocala National Forest. The island is essentially the exact middle point between the two, where there is no natural flow of water. If one wanted to travel from the Oklawaha directly to the Rainbow River via water, you would not find a passable route in Marion County. The island, however, is the last remnant of a foolish endeavor to create such a path. Within the island today, standing high over you, vines growing up their edges and tree branches brushing their sides, there are four massive concrete structures, two in the shape of an arch, two in the shape of a rectangular brick. They are incomprehensible if you didn't know the story. Your first impulse would scream some otherworldly presence had dropped these structures into place. The trail that runs alongside these structures is one way, dead-ending at a bench and a sign instructing you to turn back. Along the trail there are signs overgrown with weeds and covered in long-abandoned spiderwebs. They tell of the origins of these structures. A canal was going to be dug right through this land, and the structures were to act as a bridge for cars and pedestrians to pass over the water. But that project was cancelled, and the structures never came down. Some of the arches are close enough to touch. Some have graffiti tags by fraternities of years gone by. And as clear as the path is, and as close to society as the island rests, something about it feels like you have passed through a doorway you should not have entered. The signs here read like a warning of poor intentions and deadened ambitions. Perhaps most ominous of all are the passing references on the island of a tiny town that you may never have heard of. The map refers to some areas here as Santos, and one post along the island trail points to a church that once stood there that was the main church for this community. A century ago, this town was a flourishing black community just outside of Ocala. Then, the American government came calling. They were building a canal right through the heart of Florida, and if that job was to be completed, the town of Santos needed to be cleared out. So they bought the land out from under the residents. Basically, just going here, you take this money, be glad that you got it, get the hell out of here. And when the project didn't go anywhere, when the people came in and said, hey, can we have our property back? They were like, yeah, it's gonna cost you. And it was just a complete shakedown. That is Blue Nelson. He is an archaeologist who has studied Santos for years and wrote a comprehensive paper on the town. My argument is 
that Santos was absolutely the first large public works that was used to destroy an entire African-American community, at least in Florida. When all was said and done, the town of Santos was wiped out entirely for a massive project that would be scrapped within a few decades of its creation. For all intents and purposes, the Cross Florida Barge Canal is the most damaging and least successful endeavor that the Florida Peninsula has ever seen. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is the first of two episodes that make up our season finale about the Cross Florida Barge Canal. Today, it is known as the Cross Florida Greenway, which we will discuss at length next week. Today, it is part one, Santos. We'll be talking the canal's first stages, its first major failings, and Blue Nelson will tell us how a thriving community was written out of existence. Looking at a map of Florida's waterways, it's easy to understand why one would assume there would be a simple route by water clean through the peninsula. We have the advantage of modern satellites and cartography to know that no, in fact, if one wants to get from the Atlantic Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico via water, one has to sail all the way south around the Keys north of Cuba and into the warm waters of the Gulf. Looking at a map of the canal's projected route today, it makes a sort of boxy S-shape. It begins in Yankee Town, a tiny spot north of Tampa by an hour or so. Then it cuts east toward Ocala where it then curves north and creates the border of the forest. Once it reaches that top left corner, it cuts east again toward Palatka, where the official route of the proposed canal would connect to the St. John's River. It avoids all the most populated areas in Florida, connecting instead a handful of cities you may never have heard of before. Today, a good GPS grants you the navigational advantage, and you can easily trace the entire route as I did in June. Pedro Menendez de Aviles had no such advantage. You've heard the name before. Pedro Menendez de Aviles was the Spanish colonizer who ravaged the eastern coast and began building forts around Florida. Much of the early structures that were built by the Spanish were constructed by Menendez and his ilk. The Spanish, especially their then-king Philip II, wanted Florida to be a strategic holding for them in the quote-unquote New World. Menendez saw to it that the land of Florida had as many military strongholds as his armada could withstand. But it was one thing to have holdings and forts along the entire peninsula, but crossing all that land was a challenge. The Spanish depended on their stellar armada of ships. They could move men safer and faster that way. The land of Florida was swampy, dense, and covered in shrubs that his European soldiers could not pass through with ease. The sea would just be safer. He began seeking out a way to travel ships through Florida without the oceans. Could the rivers do the job for him? He was almost certain that, due to all the inland water he encountered in his travels, that indeed a boat could possibly pass through Florida without reaching a dead end. Philip II certainly liked the idea. But before Menendez could pursue the idea further, rebellions, mutinies, and shortages left him distracted. The Spanish colonizers retreated from their further expansions and decided instead to focus in on one spot in North Florida, St. Augustine. The idea of a cross Florida waterway was abandoned and not touched again for three 
centuries. By the time the idea was brought up again, Florida had survived the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the First Seminole War. After a brief period as two British colonies, the state was given to the Spanish only to be annexed by America and be taken in as the Florida Territory. Travel for ships was very common along Florida's shores, and to cut down on piracy on the coast, the federal government considered an inland canal. The idea of doing a proper survey of Florida water was brought up before Congress by two names you may recognize, John Calhoun and Daniel Webster. They were two of three men known as the Great Triumvirate, a trio of politicians with massive influence on 19th century American politics. Clearly, the federal government saw some value in a canal that could cut through Florida. Military boats could hide in it or travel quickly through, and merchant ships could move faster from sea to sea. There was even a theory that cities along the canal could become booming miniature port towns. By all basic reasoning, the idea could work. A century of surveys from 1829 to 1911 proved the execution was much harder to pull off than the idea may suggest. There were lots of rivers, sure, but they didn't all connect. To do that, you would have to dredge the dirt, construct a canal, and fill it with water. Too much effort and not enough reason to do so. It would help one state that barely anyone lived in. Again, the idea was scrapped. By the 1930s, the Great Depression ripped the country to pieces, leaving most out of work, and the economy struggling to survive. Herbert Hoover took much of the responsibility for this and was voted out of office because of it. Replacing him was Franklin D. Roosevelt, an excited politician who had an idea for a project called the New Deal. If it went according to plan, it could revitalize the nation. It cannot be expressed how much of modern America is the ripples from the success of the New Deal. It put people to work nationwide, brought development and art to every corner of the country, and effectively saved America as World War II loomed on the horizon. One of the many projects that the New Deal funded was one that FDR personally saw value in, the Cross Florida Barge Canal. The addition of the word barge, by the way, was because of a water survey done in 1935. The Army Corps of Engineers saw an opportunity to finally finish this canal, but their survey revealed that they couldn't dig too deep. If they wanted a certain depth, they'd start to disturb the aquifer under the land and possibly bring salt water into freshwater ecosystems. To keep it at a safe height, ships could not sail through. Only shallow barges could really traverse the pass. Nevertheless, FDR granted the project $5 million in order to ensure its completion. There would now be new dams, new blockages of rivers, and new canals. Laborers were happy to have a huge project like this and soon flooded to Ocala We've talked about Ocala, the city, a few times on this show, but it's important to note how significant this specific era is for the development of the city as a whole. Obviously, the population in the area shot up when the city was officially incorporated in 1885, but the city saw a huge bump to its population in the 1930s due in large part to the construction of the canal. Historical records state that within days of the government affirming the funding of the canal's completion, 6,000 workers flooded to the city. Bars popped up and restaurants started serving alcohol in order to compensate for the new population of young working men desperate for a brand new opportunity. With an influx of laborers comes the opportunity for unions, and a man named George J. Timmerman came to Ocala in order to help the workers get organized. 
In March of 1936, however, Timmerman was found in the woods, still alive but nailed to a cross with his lips sewn shut. He was taken to the hospital where he was treated for puncture wounds on his hands and mouth. When asked about the story, the chief of Ocala Police, J.H. Spencer, said that Timmerman had been fired from the canal project earlier and likely faked the attack to gain sympathy. Timmerman's story goes that he was jumped by a hitchhiker and attacked. When the police found him, they reported later that Timmerman asked if anyone would take pictures of the crime scene. An apparent investigation revealed a few problems with Timmerman's story. Wood similar to that used in the cross was found in his car. Not to mention the fact that Timmerman was once a vaudeville performer whose trick, no joke, was sticking himself with pins and needles as part of a show. As reported in the Tampa Tribune from the time, when asked if the story was made up, Timmerman responded, quote, If you think it is, you're full of coconut oil. End quote. According to David Tegeter and Stephen Knoll, who literally wrote the book on the Florida Canal, Ditch of Dreams, Timmerman cannot be found in historical records after that. The man disappeared with his unusual tale left behind. The project moved forward, and soon enough, it was seeing serious progress. This, of course, is when the canal meets its most costly casualty, the city of Santos. But, but the, you know, I think the thing that always gets lost is that Santos, that's always lost in the story. You remember Blue Nelson. He's an archaeologist who grew up and studied here in Florida. He has had two shows on the History Channel and has spent countless hours in Santos with the descendants of original residents of the city who he has worked with to collect their history. You had people that were losing chunks of land, right? But there was no, there were no entire towns that were destroyed, except for Santos. And if you look at the route, it almost looks like they take, you know, like a damn near 90 degree turn to be able to hit the center of this community. And so... If you're talking about the Greenway, or if you're talking about the Barge Canal, you can't not talk about Santos. And, and again, so many times uh, Santos is completely forgotten about. And most people don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. I'm an archaeologist, uh, I went, which is what I went to school to do, is become a, an archaeologist. And while I was working on my uh, undergraduate degree, I was taking, uh, I was a history major and an anthro major at the University of Florida. And I was uh, taking a class in history um, it was like Florida environmental blah, 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 right? In history with uh, Steve Knoll, who was, uh, he's, he's written the book on the barge canal. He's like the guy. But it was, it was environmental history. And, and if I'm being honest, uh, the Florida environmental history, it's, it's a great movement, but it's not cool. <laughs> it wasn't cool for me, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but, but my focus and my research and my passion has been the African-American experience during Jim Crow. And I went and talked to a Dr. Nolan. I was like, listen, uh, can I do Santos as a part of this environmental history thing? And he was like, please, please do. And, uh, and I remember him telling me, he was like, if you can find three pages, and this is supposed to be a 30-page research paper. He was like, if you could find three pages on Santos, I'll be happy. His paper, Structural Racism and the Destruction of Santos, Florida, is a 12-page story covering the history and systemic racism that surrounds the city. In it, he says, quote, In evaluating the events and circumstances surrounding the destruction of Santos, it is highly likely that structural racism played a key role in the displacement of this community. End quote. It was once I started pulling that thread, all this 
incredible information about this small town started coming out. You know, and again, it's Santos isn't a big place. Nothing uh, grand happened there. Um, there are no real celebrities that's come out of there. It's just an average town, but it's an average town that's been completely forgotten about. And again, this town was just like any other one that existed during its time, except it was lost at the hands of, you know, a government that was like, hey, I know we're in the middle of a depression, but you guys got to go, you know, and it was insult to injury. I visited Santos several times. And in fact, my uh, the thing that actually uh, got me really going was uh, Dr. Noel had put me in contact with a, a man out there, uh, Wayne Little. And Wayne Little um, still lives out there, but his family, uh, he's actually a descendant of Gilbert Little, who was the first African-American person to purchase, to actually purchase land in Santos and wow. to be a, a, an actual Santos landowner. And uh, the, I guess one cool little fact about Gilbert Little is his brother, uh, John Little, uh, is the grandfather of Malcolm X. So, what? Mal Malcolm, yeah, Malcolm X's family <laughs> uh, left South Carolina. Obviously, they splintered and went all over the place. But uh, Gilbert Little came to uh, Santos, Florida and settled. I am gobsmacked by that fact, but we move on. The story does not stop being incredible from here. He gave me all the information I needed. I mean, he obviously is a walking dictionary. You know, he, he could tell me names. He could tell me people. I mean, his father, when his father was still alive, walked around with him and was like, there used to be this there and this used to be there and so-and-so was over here. So I got a tour of the community with, with the best tour guide that they had. You know, absolutely incredible. And it was great to be able to sit there with him and, and just talk about a, a community. But we're standing in the middle of the woods. You, you can't, I mean, you might see a cistern. There's a cistern or two out there. But other than that, you look like you're standing in the middle of the woods. And he's pointing out a, a community that existed buildings, businesses, structures, and now it's just woods. Back in the 19th century, however, before Santos was just woods, the town originated with a few pioneering citizens that saw this land as an opportunity to make a place for themselves. Based on the information, the research that I've done, Santos is absolutely a freedman community. This means that the founders of this town were formerly enslaved persons. So there, you got you basically had a freedman community that, um, after the Civil War, a bunch of the, like a giant chunk of the white community leaves. Like particularly, like the people, the white people with money, your planters. So the guys that ran off to the Confederacy that came, like, that were Confederate uh, officers and whatnot, came back and were like, "We're moving, we're getting out of here. This place is run by Yankees now." And so they were enticed to actually move uh, to Brazil. So believe it or not, you have this giant chunk like this movement of uh confederate officers who moved to brazil to start plantations and colonies down there well during that time santos was open you know like i said there were there were a couple of plantations out there but you know prior to the war you've got 80 percent of the population is african-american so when the white population leaves i think they're left with you know five or ten percent of the of a white population in that area so the african-americans who According to lore and, and, and newspaper records, many of these uh, people that were freed stayed around and continued working in the area. The town of Santos was existing in a particularly violent and dangerous south for its black residents, as Florida was known for extremely high rates of racist violence. 
I think one of the things that's important for people to understand is that Santos came about in a time of extreme racism. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is Florida led the entire nation in lynching per capita. Per capita, we had more lynchings for the amount of people we had than even Mississippi had. So the Santos community, is there's a reason it's growing and like it did. And that's because, you know, once um, Reconstruction was over in Ocala, they came in and completely moved, they, like literally were, like got rid of the black community. So the black community was scattered out of Ocala because of racism. They, like, we can't have you. They had like their own like black Wall Street, black. It was awesome, but they couldn't have that. And so Marion County, where Santos sits, actually led the nation in lynchings per capita, had the highest incidence of lynchings out of any county in all of the United States. So for me, it's always important for people to understand that because we're not just talking about a black community because it's easy to think a community now, like, oh, kids running around the streets having fun, you know, that kind of thing. But that's the environment these people are coming up in. This community is, 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 is established within the racist Jim Crow South. And there are stories of, of, of in the 1870s, uh, masks, or not even masks, pe- men with just no mask walking up and shooting black people and Republicans in the streets of Ocala with witnesses and being able to get away with it. So that's the environment that Santos grew- came up in. So that's that's the one thing I always want to impart on people that, you know, even in the eight, or in the 1930s, you want to talk about Klan membership. Florida provided one-third of the entire Klan membership. So the people of Santos were coming up the entire story of Santos comes up in this just awful racist Jim Crow period that, you know, again, cannot be glossed over because that is the reason you have a Santos. And that is the reason that Santos is destroyed. So the canal is being dredged through Florida, land is pulled up and structures are put in place, and water flows in. The map is created for where the canal is going to pass, and for no reason that Blue Nelson can tell, the canal is going to pass through Santos. The only reason, potentially, is that going south would affect farmland owned by white citizens. That, apparently, was not an option. Now, the government didn't just seize the land from the residents. Rather, they offered the citizens of Santos a false reality. If they sold their land, they would be helping America in a military sense. This canal could help the Navy. And you can be a patriot by helping. This is for national defense. Be a patriot, you know? And so basically, it seems that from the interview I've done and interviews I've done with other people, descendants and and their family members, it seems like the federal government came in and was like, listen, uh, We'll purchase these places, but you got to get out of here. And so there was, there wasn't really a negotiation like most people would be like, like nowadays, before they can imminent domain your place, there would be a no gate negotiation, and you'd walk away with some money. And this time, it was very much like we're going to give you some money, get out. And one of the guys that lived out there, uh, as Johnny Damon, had uh, his father had a piece of property that was like five acres, and it had three buildings on it, two of which I, I know were homes. And I think the government came in, gave him $500 and told him to get off. 
as yeah and so and, and that's and, and that's fine that's totally cool if the government's like here here's five hundred dollars for your land get out of here but it's also during the depression you know right where, where are people gonna go but the real kicker came when the when the when the whole thing didn't go down when when the federal government met the the uh, environmentalists and were like listen this this barge canal the ship canal is just not gonna happen the people that got rid of their land the, you know the people that got five hundred dollars for a chunk of land with buildings on it those buildings were all destroyed and when these people went to the federal government and said okay let's get our property back i'll give you five hundred dollars back they were like whoa no 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 this land's now worth tens of thousands of dollars you can't afford this land what happened was the government destroyed this town by literally taking out the town center. They knocked out the community. There was no businesses like they, the, the business district, the actual, this is Santos. This is where the post office is. This is where your juke joints are. This is where your grocery stores are. All of that was destroyed. And so now you've got to go to Bellevue or you're going to uh, Ocala for goods. With segregation still in place in America at this time, by destroying a town center run by black citizens and by keeping them from going into white-only stores in nearby towns, you decimate the black community. By ripping the heart out of Santos, there was just no chance for survival. By 1939, the funding for the canal from the New Deal went dry. This, coupled with outcry by locals and environmentalists that the canal would affect the aquifer, led to the total halting of construction. The same reason the idea was abandoned before became the final nail in its coffin. It was a project for Florida and Florida alone. National taxpayers refused to allow their funds to go to something that didn't theoretically help everyone. The idea of using the canals for national defense would come up again in a few decades, but by the time the 1940s came around, the newly constructed canals were abandoned. The damage was never resolved, and Santos was left to become the island trail and empty woods that it is today. We can remember Santos for what it was, but what was done to the people who lived there can never be undone. Sometimes, when you visit places where horrible things occurred, you can't feel it. It's just a place, oftentimes serene despite the history. Santos is not that place. When you stand on the island, the trees overhead and the concrete structures looming nearby, you can feel the air tighten the shadows deepen, and though your curiosity has brought you here, your instincts will drive you away. This land should not be the way that it is. It's perhaps the only spot on the entire length of the Greenway that bears the weight of our collected sins, the clearest point where American cruelty reveals itself so plainly. The Greenway, which today runs the length of the canal, is a series of hiking trails and state parks that allow animals and humans alike to move through the woods in a hidden corridor. It is beautiful, one of my favorite areas in Florida, but here, in Santos, you can feel the burden of that creation. The pain here is concentrated. You can also feel the shame of this canal at a massive dam that stops the Ocklawaha River and creates a body of water called the Rodman Reservoir. That dam, far away from Santos on the opposite end of the National Forest, was the cause for years of conflict between the state government and an essential Florida environmental activist named Marjorie Harris Carr. Marjorie Carr died before she could complete her goal of tearing the dam down. The organization she created exists today, and if they have their way, the Ocklawaha River may flow freely sooner rather than later. The story of the creation of the Greenway 
and the war to free the rivers next week in part two, The Greenway. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I recommend that you listen to the amazing two-part story of Hamasasa State Park. They have a hippo there named Lucifer. You have to hear it to believe it. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me that you tell me what you love about this show. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. And if you want to reach me at my personal Twitter account, you can do so at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Blue Nelson. He will be in next week's episode as well, but if you're looking for more of Blue until then, he has two TV shows. Check out his shows Found and America's Lost Vikings on the History Channel. And if you're looking for more reading on Santos by Blue, there is a link to his paper below. I'd also like to recommend that you check out the fantastic book, Ditch of Dreams. It's written by David Tegeter and Stephen Knoll. It is an amazing resource for everything you would want to know about the Cross Florida Barge Canal. Thanks to Lauren Nix for photography used on the social media channels. If you would like to check out more of her work, you can do so on her Instagram at lauren.nix.photo. Her last name Nix is spelled N-I-X. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. The titles are credited below, and you can click the link there to listen to more of their fabulous music. Next week is our season four finale, The Cross Florida Canal Part Two. We'll dive into the third and final attempt at building the canal, the war to protect the waters, and the beauty on the trails of today. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside, and please drink more water. Have a good week.